This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today I am joined by Kristen Curran, co-founder and co-owner along with her husband, Drew Merritt, of Humble Roots Nursery, providing ethically propagated native plants of the Pacific Northwest and Columbia River Gorge to homeowners, farmers, gardeners, landscapers, schools, community groups, soil and water conservation groups, nonprofits, and federal agencies. The nursery works to educate people about native plants and the conservation of them. They propagate native plants and run a container nursery, as well as conduct rare plant monitoring, propagation, and outplanting, native pollinator habitat conservation, and ecological restoration. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kristen. Welcome. Thank you, Jennifer. It is my pleasure to be talking with you. So I think we get a sense of the vast range of your work and your outreach and the importance that you put on education. And I definitely want to get to that in our conversation. Um, but I'd like to start the way I always do, which is tell me a little bit about you and about Drew and about your your history and early influences that brought you to your interest in plants and the natural world and then eventually led you to founding such a nursery? Well, uh, for me and also for Drew, um, but definitely for myself, uh, it started with childhood. Um, As a child, I was outside in the woods um, and um, learning the plants every day that I could. Uh, I was the kind of kid that had, um, instead of a lemonade stand, I had a black cap raspberry jam stand of berries that I would pick the wild raspberries every morning in the summer and then make jam out of them. I knew um, where the milkweed was and when the monarchs would show up. I knew which trees had the walking sticks on them. Uh, And I basically had a connection and an understanding and a relationship to plants that transcended science and sent me on a trajectory to having a life of working with plants. Um, I went to school to study ethnobotany and agroforestry, and when I got out of school, I worked um, in a number of native plant nurseries around the state of Oregon, uh, as well as through AmeriCorps, working with a number of watershed councils in the Portland area. So one of the uh, jobs that I had in working with watershed council in um, the Portland area was to work with uh, the Fairview community, a community of people that lived around Fairview Lake. And all of these people had very beautiful lawns uh, that went up to the edge of the water around the lake. But they were being required to put in 50 to 100 foot um, riparian buffer zones uh, between the lakeshore and their houses. And the community was very much in an uproar about it. Uh, they, were, they were upset that they were going to have to lose their lakescapes to what they anticipated to be a tangled bunch of weeds. Mm-hmm. So enter myself uh, going into the homes of these um, slightly upset people and, and trying to convince them that native plants were 
just as beautiful as uh, any of the common landscaping plants that they were able to find at common nurseries and to really change their view of native plants and and get them excited about them and get them excited about planting them uh, in their lakescapes. Um, one thing that I came across in doing that work was that it was hard to source many of the native plants that we wanted to use and that I wanted to um, advise people to use. And not only was it hard to source the plants, but it was in some cases hard to be sure that we were ethically sourcing the plants. Um, combine that with, um, at the time, I was uh, had definitely started to um, get a worldview that we weren't on a very good trajectory um, and that the future was not looking as bright as it should. And, and so on many levels, I felt that um, it was time to stop talking about things and start doing them. And so here I am today with a native plant nursery. Um, when I started the nursery, my husband now, Drew, and I met um, in the first year of, of starting it, and he started working with me right away. Uh, definitely our love of plants was one thing that brought us together. And he had a long history of um, working uh, in landscaping and with plants and was particularly um, inspired by work that he did with uh, his aunt on the on Cape Cod with um, landscaping. And so our love of plants brought us together. I had just started the nursery when we met. He came in full force and has very much been a founding part of the nursery. Um, and so it is something that we both have truly created. So how long had Drew been in Oregon? Was he a recent transplant to the West Coast or had he been there for some time? Um, he had been um, in and out. Um, he was working in Antarctica, actually, um, during the uh, summers and, or I'm sorry, during our winters. And then in the summer, uh, he would come here and he would stay on his friend's land, which was uh, one property over from the land that uh, I bought. So that's how we met. And did you choose the Mosier area because that's where you grew up, or were you particularly drawn to it? Right. So I grew up in Ohio. Oh, uh, okay. But I've been in I've been in Oregon since '93, uh, so I've actually lived here longer than I haven't now. Um, and I chose Mosier. Uh, I was living in the Portland area, but I chose Mosier because. Uh, of the botanical diversity here. We're really on the edge of what we call the wet west and the dry east. We're in the foothills of the Cascades on the east side of the Cascades. And from one point, uh, we can look east and see sagebrush steppe. And in another direction, we look and we see temperate rainforest. And in the gorge, uh, with the difference in elevation and sun exposure, we have representatives of every biome between BC and Northern California mm. is present um, in the gorge. So the botanical diversity is, is really quite amazing here. 
And that is one thing that very much drew us to this place because we knew that we could be locally propagating a wide range of plants. And from the beginning, I knew that. <laughs> yeah, and 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 that is amazing. It's one of the. Um, I don't know if it's remarkable about our whole country. I, I believe it to be, but I certainly know it to be about where I happen to live. And it gives you this tremendous, uh, profound respect for the um, native plants that are available to us and how how remarkable they are. So um, that is a, a fantastic place to be. Was it always going to be an all-native nursery in your mind, Kristen? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there was uh, never any question of it not being native. Um, I've been very, very passionate about native plants for a long time now. And um, let's face it, native plants are just 10 million times more interesting than petunias. So there's just, <laughs> I can be working with plants that I've worked with for decades and still learn something new about them every day. Mm-hmm. So how many species do you currently grow um, and how do you select for them? I, I, I think that your experience on um, Lake Fairview is certainly the experience that many of us have had in trying to develop really good, rich native plant gardens. And that is that it is very difficult to source as broad a range as we want. And, um, and that has certainly come a long way, and, but has still a lot longer way to go. Tell us about that, sort of the evolution of that process for you. And how, how old is the nursery right now? So the nursery is about 12 years old. Um, We started slowly because we were very uh, dedicated to ethically propagating, uh, which means that we propagate primarily by seed. Um, There are some species of plants, primarily native shrubs, uh, that we do propagate from cuttings. And there's a small amount of plants that we propagate from seed but then cultivate in the nursery for vegetative divisions. We never dig plants from the wild. We feel very strongly about ethical propagation. Um, We watch the populations of plants that we work with to ensure the health of parent populations. And we readily refuse to collect seed, regardless of how much we might want to grow that plant, if we feel that there is not enough seed available. Because first and foremost, we consider the health of the species and the species that depend on that plant. Um, And we're willing to take the time to do that. And so it was a slow start for us uh, because it took us about three years to develop nursery stock. Many of our local native plants, um, columbine, for instance, take two years to germinate from seed. Uh, Many of our native bulbs take at least three years until they're at all a size that we would consider sellable or transplantable. Um, And so in those early years as we were seed propagating and uh, developing our nursery stock, we were also, um, we were growing vegetables uh, that we were selling to local restaurants during that time. So that's where the Humble Roots, our official name is Humble Roots Farm and Nursery, because when we first incorporated the business, uh, we were growing vegetables at the time. But uh, three years into it, we had a sizable nursery stock, and so we dedicated um, 100% of our time to the nursery because we truly feel that um, it is a way that we can possibly have a positive impact 
um, on the future, both locally and globally. So we, um, we source our plants ourselves. Um, like I said, we collect all of our own seed, um, do all of our own propagations. Um, we choose, right now we work with, um, we work with hundreds of species of plants. Uh, at any one point in time, we tend to have around 100 to 200 uh, different species in active propagation. Um, and the way that we choose the plants that we work with uh, are based on a few criteria. One is, uh, are they a good species for restoration? Um, are they going to grow quickly, hold soils, uh, provide a pollinator and wildlife habitat as quickly as possible for a restoration project? Um, so that goes into the other criteria. Do they provide habitat and food for pollinators and wildlife? Uh, we do uh, select plants that we think will appeal to gardeners and landscapers because we really want to get over that hurdle that native plants are weeds. Um, they are not. They are, they are beautiful. They are breathtaking. And, um, and we, we do want to link people to them, uh, get in through the front door, so to speak, with um, charming them with how beautiful they are and how interesting they are. So we do try to propagate plants that we feel will um, appeal to a wide variety of gardeners and landscapers. Um, we also live uh, in a very dry area, so drought tolerance is very important to us. And in particular, uh, many of the drought tolerant species, what we call the east side, so east of the cascade species, are not uh, easy to source. Uh, they're not being grown in most native plant nurseries. Um, and so we, we do feel it is important for us to be propagating and providing those plants. Give us, some, give us some examples oh. of those plants. Sure. One, one of the biggest uh, groupings uh, or genera of, of plants that comes up is eriogonums or native buckwheat. Mm -hmm. um, there is a wide variety of, of native buckwheat, as I know you well know um, uh, from the interview that I heard uh, you, you did last week. Each buckwheat uh, can attract a huge amount of beneficial insects and are uh, important plants for pollinators. We're speaking today with Kristen Curran of Humble Roots Nursery in Mosier, Oregon. Humble Roots is working to cultivate a passion for native plants in gardeners and conservationists of their region. We've heard about the history of the founding of Humble Roots. After the break, we'll be back to hear more about the team's conservation efforts and philosophy. Stay with us. If you're just joining us, this is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, we're speaking with Kristen Curran of Humble Roots Nursery in Mosier, Oregon, about their educational conservation work and philosophy. Welcome back. I am a follower of Humble Roots on social media, and I read your thoughts, sometimes impassioned and sometimes frustrated, about the ethics involved in wild collecting and wild crafting. You, you, you started to talk about this in the sourcing of your plants, and I would like to, you to um, define the term uh, wild crafting and so that listeners can, can understand it, and to discuss a little bit more of your, your feelings on thoughts on how non-nursery owners can source native plants or um, propagate them. Talk a little bit about this philosophy. Sure. Well... Um, wildcrafting is uh, going and 
uh, taking um, plants uh, or parts of plants uh, or many other things than plants, uh, collecting bones or collecting feathers. It's, it's basically taking anything out of a wild setting, uh, something that has not been, well, cultivated. Um, now, don't get me wrong, I, both Drew and I feel very much that we do need to take charge of our, our food and our medicine systems. Um, I see a lot of people approaching um, wild crafting from a medical standpoint or a collector's standpoint, um, but not a lot of people um, are approaching it from a botanical standpoint. And I think that there is uh, so many layers of things going on with these plants and these ecosystems um, that we are just starting to understand. And it is what we don't understand that could cause us to uh, do some real damage out there. Um, there's a lot of pressure on, on these plants uh, in the West. Uh, we are losing an area the size of a football field to development uh, every two and a half minutes. That's based on a study done by disappearingwest.org. You can go to their website and see their report on this uh, study that was done between 2001 and 2011, which, keep in mind, that included the years of the recession, so that, that number might be bigger now. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of pressure. Um, recent studies say that one in five um, of the world's plants species are in danger of extinction. Um, and that 30 to 50% of all species, all species including animals, could be extinct by mid-century. We're looking at um, climate change, uh, and we are, both Drew and I are, are very much seeing uh, direct correlations to changes that are happening due to climate change um, right now. And um, so these species are under a lot of pressure to evolve quickly. Uh, some of them need to migrate potentially, uh, northward or into different ranges um, where they can weather the storm, so to speak. Um, and so that's something that, that concerns us when people are going out and harvesting. Are they aware of the ranges of these plants is, is one thing. I often pick up um, guidebooks to foraging and wild medicine making or dyeing or whatever, and they talk about plants that... Uh, they, they make it seem like these are very abundant plants that you could harvest from, but <laughs> they're not abundant in my area. There may be areas of the Pacific Northwest where they're abundant and potentially could be harvested with little detriment to the parent population, but uh, in my area, some of the plants that these guidebooks are pointing people to are very rare, and it would be very inappropriate to take uh, a fruit or a nut um, something that contains the seed uh, from these plants and remove it uh, from the ecosystem. One of the baseline uh, rules that you hear a lot of people say is don't take more than 10% of any stand or population of plant that you find. Um, while in some cases that could be a good baseline, uh, that's also a very misleading baseline. Um, there are some populations of plants that uh, you, you shouldn't take anything from them. They're, they're either rare um, or they are genetically distinct or they're disjunct populations. Um, 
And so are people aware enough of, of, of these, um, of the ranges of these plants and of the overall health of the populations of these plants? Another thing um, that concerns us is uh, it's been about a little over 100 years now uh, that we've been using fire suppression as a primary management tool um, on our public lands and on our wildlands. And this is having a, a, this has a major impact on the health of these ecosystems. Um, many of the plants that I do hear of people um, wildcrafting are fire dependent species by digging something up but then sprinkling some seeds in its place. But those seeds aren't going to sprout unless there's a fire that comes through. Some of these plants we propagate and we have to give them a, what we call a fire treatment to get them to germinate. And then getting them to uh, maturity is, is, is difficult for some of these species because they have very specific uh, soil relationships um, and things like that. If you go in and you harvest a root of a plant and you cause a disturbance, uh, even if you sprinkle the seeds of that particular plant in that space, there is no guarantee that that is what is going to grow there. 90% um, chance that what's going to grow are the weed seeds that came in on your shoe or the weed seeds that may be in the soil bank already um, and will sprout more aggressively than the plant that you're harvesting. Um, You know, it's, it's, we don't have to be separated uh, from nature. We're, we're in the lens. We're in the shot here. We're a part of the picture. Um, it was a misconception for many, many years that the Northwest First Nations Coast people did not cultivate plants. Uh, it was believed that they lived in an area of such fertility that they didn't need to cultivate plants, and, and that's completely not true. Uh, there's some species of fritillaries that may be growing on the North American continent because they were actually brought as food plants mm -hmm. by people crossing the Bering Strait many thousands of years ago. Uh, there are plants that may actually be in decline because we are not actively working with them and propagating them. Um, examples of that could be wild tobacco, uh, hemp dogbane, which is used for basketry, um, and uh, even some of our native lily plants um, that were used as food. Um, but we can't just go on to a nature conservancy preserve and start harvesting and replanting camas. So how do we bring this home? How do we do this in areas that we can that we can we can explore working with using utilizing these plants both for ourselves and for all the other species uh, that depend on them. Um, you know it would be great to see uh, a farmer uh, possibly take a small part of of uh, a farm and create a community camas patch so that we can be eating and harvesting and learning how to, to grow camas um, rather than just going out and, and harvesting it from the wild. Um, so we're concerned about people going and, and possibly having some very, very uh, detrimental effects on um, basically loving these plants to death. Yeah. And so, yeah. So Given that, and you are a plant lover, and I am a plant lover, and we want to 
cultivate other plant lovers, but we want to do it in a way that is both cautious and conservative and well-informed. What are your recommendations for listeners on how to um, love plants and not love them to death? Give us, give us some, uh, briefly give us your recommendations to people so that these worries do not come to re- be a reality. Well, there's, there's, there's sort of many layers of that, um, both in what you can do in your backyard and also what you can do to help on a larger scale. On a larger scale, um, certainly we encourage everybody, if, if you have any time whatsoever, please join a volunteer group that's going out to remove invasive weeds. Um, some of our invasive weeds are, are really wonderful food plants and medicines, so I'd be very excited to see groups of herbalists target, targeting invasive species. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could have a very positive effect in that way. Um, and then, like we say, and um, other groups that are like United Plant Savers that are uh, studying some of these medicinal herbs um, and, and keeping an eye out as to whether they're being over-harvested or not, um, if you, we say if you want to use it, grow it. And that right there, that starts, the, that starts a much deeper connection and understanding of the plant's and the species that depend on them, and it would it will just spread like wildfire through your mind. It really will. It will just change the way you look at everything. Once you start to have these plants in your garden, in your backyard, you are forming a connection with them, and you are understanding things about them, and you're seeing relationships that they have with the insects uh, around them and with the animals and everything, and and that just will sort of open the door for being able to understand what is going on around us all the more. Thank you so much, Kristen, for being with us today. Thank you, Jennifer. It's been my pleasure. Kristen Curran and her husband, Drew Merritt, are the founders and owners of Humble Roots Nursery in Mosier, Oregon. This award-winning nursery aims to do everything they can to help others cultivate a passion for and have a direct relationship with native plants. For me, this emphasis in our conversation today and in their work generally on developing a relationship with my native plants through observation and time and effort is what I take home. It's an emphasis we can all work to further. Join us next Thursday when our conversations continue on cultivating our own places. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Matt Schultz and Sarah Bohannon. For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the Cultivating Place podcast, please visit MyNSPR.org. For more information, including many photos, please visit JewelGarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.